And Lord, we pray that you'd meet us now as we open up your word. Thank you so much for this book of Philippians. What a treasure it is. And Lord, I pray that you would powerfully work in every single heart that's here. We know Satan wants to take this word out of our hearts, wants to distract us, wants to deflect its impact. And Lord, we pray that you'd come with power. We know spiritual warfare breaks out whenever we open up your word. And so, Lord, come with power and let us hear and receive and be transformed by the good news in this passage. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Philippians. So, throughout the Bible, we talked about this last week, God gives us examples of godly, faithful men and women who obey him. And I think about, like, Ruth. Remember? Obedience to the Lord. Remember, think about uh, David. Saul had tried to kill him. David didn't seek his revenge, though. David obeyed the Lord. Abraham, by faith, he was called to go out to a land he didn't even know about, and by faith he went. And then Esther, who risked her life for the people of Israel. So we've got obedience, examples of obedience all through the Bible. But there's a huge problem. Okay, We, we mentioned this last week, and that it's so easy for us, just by the way that we're wired to take the point of those examples wrongly. And it's very easy for us to look at these examples of godly men and women who obeyed God, and we, and we think, well, okay, what we're supposed to do then is we're supposed to just, by our own strength and in our own resources and by our own power, we're supposed to try to imitate them. So let's just try to be like Abraham or try to be like Esther. But that's not the point of the examples in the Scripture. There's another point that is so crucial that is so easy for us to miss And I want us to see what that is again by turning to the book of Philippians. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. What is the point of the examples that God gives in his word? We will see that in Philippians chapter 1. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand so we can bring one to you. I want to make sure you all have a copy of the scriptures to look on with this morning. And in the Bibles we're passing out, Philippians 1 is on page 980. So go ahead, get your Bibles, open up Philippians chapter 1. Now, in your teaching notes, I put arcing of this passage, which we call arcing, and so I want you to look at that. It's right on the first page there, and it's up on the screen here as well, because I want you to see where Paul's going in terms of this passage. Now, at least in chapter 1, Paul has two main concerns, and this, this may be played out through the rest of the book. We will see. But he has two main concerns, at least in chapter 1. You can see in verses 27 and 28. One is he wants them to grow in loving each other and being unified together. Some relational divisions have cropped up, and Paul wants them to grow in loving each other. And then secondly, some of them have become timid in telling people about Jesus Christ because of the threat of persecution. And so Paul Paul wants them to grow in loving unity, and he wants them to grow in bold witness. Those are his two main concerns, and everything in chapter 1 so far is to move up to that point. Now, in in, uh, let me get my little... Here we go. So now in, in verse 12 through 26, here we have two examples that Paul gives of how he has been loving and walked in unity with other people and how he has been a bold witness. So we've got two sections of examples. We did this last week and we're going to come to this this week. But what's the point of those examples? Paul lays the framework for how we take those examples in verses 3 through 8 and verses 9 through 11. Remember verses 3 through 8, Paul thanks God for how faithfully the church at Philippi has been joining with him in advancing the gospel. 
But see, if Paul thanks God for how faithfully they've been advancing the gospel, that shows that it's God's power, not mostly their own, that worked in their hearts and enabled them to do this. So isn't that encouraging? I mean, it's God's power that enabled them to obey. So he says, God, thank you for how you've enabled this church at Philippi to be advancing the gospel, showing that it's his power that brought that about. So here's why this is such good news. No matter how weak you might feel when it comes to obeying Jesus Christ, it's God's power through Jesus Christ that will transform you. It's not you trying to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Okay, that's verses 3 through 8. And then verses 9 through 11, Paul prays for them that they would abound in love for other people. Now, why does Paul pray and ask God, God, help them to abound in love for other people? It's because that's what God does. God's power helps us to abound in love for other people. So again, in verses 9 through 11, we see that the point is that God works this into our hearts. God's power changes us. God's power enables us to love other people. So the point from verse 3 all the way through to verse 11 is that God is the one whose power enables us to obey. And then that's how Paul wants us to take the examples that he gives us in verse 12 all the way through verse 26. We saw two of them last week, 12 through 18. Remember how bold Paul was in preaching the gospel in the prisons of the whole Roman army in that area had heard the gospel through his preaching? And then we saw how Paul responded with forgiveness and love to these these brothers who were preaching the gospel to make him jealous, and he didn't take that personally, cause a big division thing. So that example in verses 12 through 18, again, the point of that example, and then the point of the example in verses 18 through 26 that we're going to see today, is not, this is what you're supposed to try to do by your own power, but what we're going to see is, this is what God was able to do by his power in Paul, and this is what God will also do in you. That's how we should take these examples. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at his first example, which he gives. So we're looking at verses 18 through 26 today. So the first example is, Paul describes how he is fearless when facing death. Can I remember, don't miss this, I'm going to make sure you all get this. The reason that God has the Bible full of examples isn't so we think, oh man, okay, I've got to try to be like that. It's to show us, this is what God will do in you. This is how God will transform us through faith in Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. This is what God will do in you as you're walking by faith and putting your trust in Christ. So Paul describes how he's fearless when facing death. Now, start in the second half of verse 18. First half of verse 18, previous example. Second example starts with the second half of verse 18. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, so Paul, at the very beginning of this example, second half of verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. Now that is a stunning statement. There's Paul in prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, 
facing a trial which could possibly condemn him to death for telling people about Jesus Christ. There he is, in prison, chained, facing this trial, facing the possibility of death. And Paul says, I will rejoice. Why? Why, Paul? Tell us why here. Okay, you having a hard time rejoicing in the trials you're facing? Why does Paul rejoice? Notice that word for at the beginning of verse 19. That shows that verse 19 gives the reason for what Paul has just said. Here's why Paul rejoices. Look at what he says, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does that mean? That word deliverance could make you think that Paul is saying he knows that this is going to mean I'm going to be getting out of jail soon. But that can't be what Paul means because of the next two verses. Verses 20 and 21 show, as Paul is continuing to talk about why he has joy, and so look at what he says about why he has joy, verses 20 to 21, as it is my eager expectation and hope that he will be delivered from prison, no, that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, so Paul's joy is not that he's going to be delivered from prison. Paul's joy is that he knows that as they pray for him, and as God answers that prayer and provides him with the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit strengthening him, that he will be strengthened to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to be full of courage, whether it's life or whether it's death. And so that's why he rejoices. So the deliverance he's talking about is not deliverance from prison. And that, that Greek word is actually the word usually translated salvation. He's talking about God's going to use your prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's bringing me on the path to salvation through all of this. So I'm rejoicing. Salvation's coming. He's going to help me now. I rejoice. Now, don't miss this. So easy to miss this when we read this passage. What was it that Paul was confident would enable him to be courageous in the face of death? Why was Paul so sure he would be courageous in the face of death? Did you catch that? Was it his own? I'm a pretty courageous guy. No, it's their prayers for him and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Did you catch that? So encouraging. So here's an example of courageous Paul. Okay, But why is Paul so courageous? It's because the church is praying for him and because the Holy Spirit's going to be strengthening him, encouraging him, comforting him, building his faith, showing him who Jesus is so he's rejoicing and full of courage. So again, The example doesn't show us what you are supposed to try to be by your own efforts and energy. The example shows us what God, by his power, will do in everyone he's saved. As we look to Christ by faith, people are praying for us, and the Holy Spirit's being poured out. Okay? So that's why Paul knows that he's going to rejoice. He knows that as they pray for him, and as God provides the Holy Spirit, that he will be courageous even in the face of death. Now, why does Paul share that example with the believers in Philippi? It's because they were letting the prospect of persecution make them start to become fearful. So they weren't telling people about Jesus as much anymore. So he wants to show them, this is what God will do in you. This is what he will do in me. This is what he has done in me. This is what he will do in you. So here's the example of of Paul's courage. Now, I want to point out one other crucial thing. 
God gives this fearlessness to Paul, but where does it come from? How does God give it? And the answer is in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, fearlessness is not something that, you know, Paul's just this fearless guy. Fearlessness comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Think of an illustration like this. Let's say that you were really fearful of paying your bills. And I've got bills coming up, and I'm really afraid I'm not going to pay these bills. Okay, well, well, if, if God gave you a billion dollars in the bank and said every time a bill comes, I'm going to give you another 100000 just to just make sure you're not concerned, okay, would you still be afraid of not paying your bills? Well, why? Because you're such like a courageous person? Like, wow, you're amazing. You're so full of courage. This is incredible. <laughs> no. It's I got a billion in the bank and 100000 every time a bill comes just to make sure we're covered. So the reason for the fearlessness would be in what's in the bank, not in your own strength or ability or discipline or whatever. The reason Paul was fearless was because of Jesus in the bank, if you will. It's because he has Jesus Christ. For me to live, he says, is Christ. That is, what made Paul fearless was not who Paul was, it's who Jesus is. This is so crucial for us to get. When you know Jesus Christ, he is so majestic and so beautiful and so real and so near and so loving and so tender and so strong and so satisfying that when you know Jesus Christ and when you know that he's conquered the power of death through his death on the cross, your sins are all forgiven, so death just means more of him. You'll be fearless when it comes to persecution for his name or for the possibility of death because you have him, because you have Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. So Paul's fearlessness should not leave us in awe of Paul, but in awe of Christ. Jesus is so beautiful so glorious, so real, so powerful, that when you know him and your heart is filled with him and you know that death is the gateway to more of him, you will be fearless when it comes to being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul wants us to understand here. Jesus is so majestic that he will completely satisfy your life now and he will give you more of himself with death. So there is no reason to fear talking to the people about Jesus. None. In your bullets, I gave you a quote from Jim Elliott. You don't need to turn there now. It'll be up here on the screen. But remember Jim Elliott, most of you have heard of him. He's a young man in his 20s. This is back in the 1950s. And he heard about some uh, Indians in the Amazon area, a very remote area. They'd never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he heard about them and their need for Christ and his heart was stirred. And he knew He knew that some oil engineers had gone into their territory and been killed by these Indians. He knew the risks that were entailed. But he and some other 20-year-old guys went into that area in order to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. And they were killed. But, a couple years later, their killers heard the Gospels. Other people went in and brought the Gospel to them. Their killers were saved. The whole tribe became saved. So why would Jim Elliott risk death? He knew he was risking death to to take the gospel to these people. Here's what he wrote in his journal before he went. 
He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The power of his fearlessness was this gain that he knew was coming. It's not that Jim Elliott was such an amazingly fearless guy. It's that what he was going to gain was worth it all. And what was the gain that Jim Elliott now is enjoying? Beholding Jesus Christ face to face. That's what Paul's talking about here. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now again, the power for that comes through who Jesus is. So here's, here's the application. If you look at your life and you think, gosh, I'm, I'm so timid. I'm so fearful of what my neighbors might think of me if I talk about Jesus. I'm so, you know, shy. Okay? Here's the good news, and that is fearlessness doesn't come from inside of you. Fearlessness is given to you as you know the Lord Jesus Christ. So set your heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk with Christ. Love Jesus Christ. Grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Spend time in worship of Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus Christ. As you do that, you will come to know him more and more and more, and your fearlessness will grow more and more and more, because you'll say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's that first example from from this morning's passage. This is what God will do in you as well as we set our hearts upon Jesus Christ and who he is. That's the first example. Second one in this passage, verses 22 to 26, Paul describes how he gladly chooses what benefits others. Okay, now he's just said, Jesus Christ gives me so much life and promises so much gain being before him face to face in heaven that I'm I'm fearless when it comes to life or death. But but he, he Paul doesn't know what God's going to call him to do yet, and he says he doesn't know which he would even prefer. And so he talks about that now in verses 22 through 26. Which would Paul prefer? He, this is what he's struggling with. Start with verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that is not die, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, these two options. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, so Paul is hard-pressed, he says, between these two options. All right, Verse 23, he says, his desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. And in the Greek, these words are like over-the-top superlative. Like this, That is so far better, unbelievably better, incomparably better. This is vastly better to go and be with Christ. I want to go home. That's Paul's heart. But then in verse 24, he says that for him, Paul, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for them. In other words, he knows that if he continues to live, he'll be able to visit the church at Philippi, pray for them, teach them, encourage them, strengthen their faith. 
So in verses 22 through 24, Paul is not sure whether he's going to live or die and even which option he would choose. He's hard-pressed between these two options. See that? Okay. But then in verse 25, there seems to be a change that takes place. Because suddenly, as he writes verse 25, now he knows that he is going to be released from prison and and return to them. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. End of verse 26, I'll be coming to you again, in other words. Okay, now, commentators really wrestle with what happened between verse 24 and 25. Okay, to have Paul go from, I don't know which is going to happen, I don't know which I would choose to, I know I'm going to be released. And there's lots of different answers given. The one that makes most sense to me is that as Paul is writing verse 24, that to stay alive is going to be better for you, I'll be able to come and visit you, and, and, and it's going to be profitable spiritually for you, that as he's writing that verse, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and says, Paul, that's exactly what you're going to do. I'm going to be releasing you from prison. You're going to be going back and seeing them again. So here's the picture I get. So here's Paul. He's writing this letter. He writes verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And he might stop and pause and just say, oh, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with you. Okay, but then he, then he writes, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh, that's more necessary for your account. And as he writes that verse, he pauses. Oh, yes, Lord. Okay, I trust you. I see what you're saying. I'm going to be staying alive, delivered from prison, and I'm going to go and see them. And then he writes, verse 25, though convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Okay, that's, that's my best idea from other, other commentators who say the same thing for why the change in verse 25. Okay, but whether that's right or not, he's giving them this as an example. It's an example of how much God will enable them to choose what will benefit other people even though he might desire to go to be with the Lord, here, Paul give, here God gives him the, the, the ability to do what's best for them. So he gives him this example. And so, see, Paul, he knows his life could go in two different ways. Depart and be with Christ, that's far better. If I stay here, I'm going to be benefiting you. And then he ends up saying, he embraces that and says, yes, I will stay and do what's beneficial for you. I will serve you. I will meet your needs. I will help you. I will come to encourage you. And so the, the reason that that happens in Paul He was willing to let go of the far better option because God had brought this love into his heart that he prays they will have in verses 9 through 11. This is so crucial to understand. The the joy that Jesus gives us in himself, oh, to be with you would be far better. That joy that Christ gives us in knowing him isn't the kind of joy that that makes us all like kind of cloister ourselves and go be monks and just kind of spend all the time all by ourselves having these reveries of spirituality between ourselves and Jesus. Now, he does that. He pours out his spirit upon us numerous times, but the joy he gives you is an expansive joy. So you want to give that joy to other people. You want to love other people. The joy he gives you has as its greatest joy to see other people enter into your joy in the Lord. It's an expansive joy to see them come and grow in the joy of who the Lord is yourself. And that's the kind of joy that Paul has. Look at verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this I know, that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul thought of what it's going to be like when he walks into that little gathering of believers there at Philippi. And they knew that he was in prison, chained to a Roman guard, facing a trial which could mean his death. And, they, and he walks in and they say, glory to God, Jesus, you're beautiful. Thank you for your faithfulness. And they're glorying in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's passion is to see people glorying in Christ. So the joy that God gave to Paul isn't like, I want to go to heaven, forget these, forget ministry, I just want to go to heaven. He does prefer that. He knows that's better. But the joy that God gives is an expansive joy. It increases the more you spread it to other people. Now here's what this means for us. That's what will happen in your heart when you behold Jesus Christ, trust him Love him, worship him, and as he starts to satisfy you and fill you, the joy he puts in your heart is an expansive joy. He wants to see other people drawn into the joy of knowing Christ. He wants to see other people's needs met so that they can see who Jesus Christ is in you. And so as you grow in beholding Jesus Christ, knowing him, loving him, trusting him, you'll, you'll like want to make dinner for your neighbor. If there's a need over there, they, maybe there's a surgery going on or, or some kind of a difficulty, you'll want to make dinner for your neighbor because you have this expanse of joy. Or if there's somebody in your home group who's really struggling this week, and man, you've got to get up early the next morning for work or something, and, but you will stay up late and talk to them because you have this expanse of joy. Oh, you want to see their needs met. You want to see them strengthened in the Lord. You want to see them glorifying Jesus Christ. And so no matter how loveless your heart feels right now, irrelevant irrelevant because when you behold jesus christ trust him love him ask for his help rely on him worship him he will satisfy your heart with an expansive joy and you will want to love other people you will want to serve the person at your workplace you will want to love your wife love your husband serve your kids serve your parents you'll want to do that that's the joy that god gives and it's expansive joy Okay, so the reason Paul shares this example with them and with us is so we'll understand this is what God can do in someone's heart like Paul. This is what God can do in your heart as he pours his love into your heart through knowing Jesus Christ. This is what he will do. So we've seen two examples. Okay, One is his boldness in the face of death. And secondly, his love in choosing what will benefit other people. Both of these aren't examples of like, wow, Paul is amazing. I've got to try to be that by my own power. No. Both of these are examples of this is what God can do. God took Paul, who was not this at all, and transformed him into this is what he became. This is what God did for Paul. This is what God will do for you. Do you believe that? This is what God does. He will change your heart in this way. But see, if we're just thinking, okay, bootstraps, pull it up, trying harder, try to be loving, try to not be timid and fearful, we're not looking to Jesus Christ, we're not fellowshipping with him, we're not trusting him, he's not satisfying our hearts, he's not filling us, he's not giving us that expansive joy, he's not giving that to us, and so this just does not work. This works, this just does not work. So stop doing this, trying harder by your own strength and effort. And trust Jesus, love Jesus, know Jesus, behold him, worship him, walk with him. He's your friend. He's your God. He's your savior. He will meet you. He will satisfy you and you will be changed as a result. Now, what questions does that raise? 
It's like, I'm not sure that's what the passage is saying, or, yeah, but how does this actually work in real life? What questions? This is good for us to talk together, kind of chew this over. Let's do this, church. This, this is what Jesus Christ will do in our hearts. Go ahead, Aaron. Yes. Good. We're not. We don't be passive and just say, "Okay, God, if you want me to go do something with my neighbor, then just you know have me start." And okay, he's not doing it, so we're not passive. Okay. We do something. What do we do? Okay. The first step is to to look to Jesus Christ and to trust Him, to behold all that God promises to be to us in Him. And to trust him, to, to behold him, to worship him, to read the scriptures about who he is, to strengthen your faith in him. That's, it's, it all starts, everything's by faith. So love for others, faith works itself out in love, Galatians chapter 5 or 6. The first step to be loving is faith, faith in Jesus Christ. When I'm not loving, okay, the problem is I'm not trusting Jesus Christ. It's just as simple as that. It's just the truth. But when I cast my burdens upon him, give him my worries, my concerns, worship him, behold him, turn from whatever else I was trusting to satisfy me, put my trust in him, then he moves upon my heart, strengthens me, fills me, gives me peace. That expansive joy starts to come. And then, I don't wait until I'm like overwhelmed so because I'm, I'm walking over there all myself, but okay, Lord, now here, you're changing my heart. I'm, I, I want to care for them. And y- you may take steps before your heart is overwhelmed with love. You may need to take steps before your heart is overwhelmed with fearlessness, but it'll be growing. It's happening. So the first step is faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Anybody else can put that differently or more clearly, maybe? Josie. That's good. Good. Yes. And it's as, it's also it's as you're going out, you're trusting in the Lord. Okay, you're relying on Him. Help me, fill me with Your love, meet me. It's just like it's like the vine and the branches, John 15, right? How much fruit can we bear as branches without being connected to the vine? None. So the first step in that passage is, and the only step he really gives us, is to abide, connect to the vine, trust Jesus, cast your cares upon him, ask him to help you, ask him to give you his love, and he will. And then you step out and start to obey, relying on him now. Give me your love. Here we go. And he will. So, okay, somebody else. JP. Hmm. Yes. Yes. It's God's power that makes us want to do it again. 
went. Yes. Um, and sometimes it's harder for us to see that in the West because um, we have a, you know, the, our Protestant work ethic mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. is so ingrained mm-hmm. in our culture. Um, but being sick a lot recently has kind of showed me that no matter how much even I want to do something, if the Lord hasn't decided it's going to happen, it's not going to happen. Yeah, you've seen that. Okay, thank you. And then up here to Rochelle, you had it? Thanks, Steve. I actually just had a quick question. Yeah. What actually happened? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He got out of prison. Yes. I should have mentioned that. Yes, he did. Yep. Good question. Other questions? Thank you for that. Okay, so here's the good news. Uh, I'm sorry, Sanvi, go ahead. Is it possible to uh, behold Christ and remain inactive? No. I don't think so. Should we vote on, I mean, do you, do you think, should we vote on that? I mean, not on, 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 just so we get a sense of what we all think here. Not that we determine, but... Um, and, and the verse I would share would be 2 Corinthians 3.18. Okay, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So beholding Christ's glory transforms. How many have experienced that? And so, I mean, man... Almost every day, my heart's just a wreck, and you know, it's some different when I first wake up, or later, or both. Okay, and and you 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 come before the Lord, and and just say, "Help me! I'm fearful. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm blah. I'm bored. Just whatever it might be." And you you look to Jesus Christ, and you say, "I believe. Help my unbelief. Show me your glory." Help me see you. I'm blind. I'm just not seeing. I'm not feeling. There's nothing happening in my heart. Help me. And when we when we behold him, we we are transformed. Second Corinthians three eighteen. Any other scriptures that would back that up besides that one? JP. Ah, faith is dead. Right. Yeah. So living faith always produces works. Yes. Yep. So living faith always produces works. Abiding always produces fruit. Beholding always produces transforming. See that? This is so crucial. So this is beautiful how the Christian life is lived. Dave. I just want to encourage others, if you're led by the Lord, to go out and, and tell others about the Lord and try and get them to come to church. Uh, you are going to be put down by people that love you that are non-Christians. Yes. I mean, it happened to me yesterday when I talked to you about Yes. Uh, my wife jumped all over me about pushing my religion and other people yeah. because she's not a believer. Yes. And I just said, well, this is my job. I'm just trying to save you and her and everybody else from going the wrong way when you die. Yes, absolutely. And so don't let them get you down because just trust and obey. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way it works. Good words. Good words. Thanks, Dave. So here's the good news. I want to I want to close with it. 
I would guess most all of us, you're looking in your heart and you're saying, not much fearlessness there, not much expansive love there. Most of us, maybe not all, some of you maybe are full of that right now, which is wonderful. But see, here's the good news. It doesn't mean it's hopeless for you, okay? Because that's not where it comes from. It comes from beholding Jesus Christ. And so take your, put your effort and energy into knowing him, abiding in him, beholding him, trusting him. Put your effort and energy there. Now, he may call you to take steps before you feel like it's all kicking in. That's it. Obey him and trust him as you're, as, you're, as you're stepping out in obedience. But see, that's, the, that's where the fruit comes from. It's from abiding. That's where the transformation comes from. It's from beholding. So abide and behold. No matter how empty your heart is, no matter how weak you feel, look to Jesus Christ. And I promise you, in these next weeks, you will see transformation take place. You will see fearlessness grow. You will see expansive love for others increased. You'll be a different man, a different woman, a different young person a week, two weeks, three weeks from now. If you, if you focus on beholding Christ, abiding in Christ, you'll be a different person. He'll be glorified and you'll be thrilled and we'll all be happy. So let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. I praise you that you give these examples in, in your word, not, not something that we're supposed to try to become like in our own effort, but as examples of what you do in someone's heart when we look to you, walk with you, love you, and trust you. Thank you. What a beautiful way to live the Christian life you've laid out for us. And Father, I pray for some here this morning who, who maybe do not know anything of what we're talking about in terms of knowing you, Lord Jesus. They don't know anything of what it means to abide in you and experience you and and have that relationship with you. Oh, Lord, I pray that today that relationship would start, that, that they would repent of their sin, turn away from whatever else they've been trusting to satisfy them. They'd put their trust in you, Jesus Christ, to forgive them, change them, and satisfy them in yourself. But I pray that today would be the day when they are saved when you would do that, and then that you would pour out your spirit upon them and that they would know and feel and behold and experience that transformation start. So Lord, help those here who, who, who aren't, don't know what it is to, to trust Jesus Christ. I pray for any here who do know what it is to trust Christ, but that they've drifted from that. They've been working hard, maybe, and, and it's not going so well. Lord, I pray that they would, would come back to that place of abiding, that place of beholding, that place of loving you, worshiping you, knowing you. Please do that, Lord, I pray. In all of us, in me and in all of us, Lord, we all need more of that. So pour that out upon us. And I pray that we would become fearless, as you promised to do, and we'd become more loving, as you promised to do. Please do that in us for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.